Hello and welcome to Amplify. I'm Jonathan Grimes and this week we bring you a conversation with composer Raymond Dean marking his 70th birthday. Recorded at the end of last month in front of an invited audience, the conversation between Raymond, myself and CMC director Yvonne Ferguson takes a look back over his composing life and discusses some of his recent pieces. The event took place in CMC's building in Fishamble Street and also included performances of some of Raymond's work by Robert Finnegan on saxophone, Emma Coulthart and David Appleton on flute and piano, and a vocal quartet with singers Blah Conroy Murphy, Breach Nguruagon, Shane Barriscale and Paul McGough. I should also mention that the conversation and performances happened to coincide with some bell ringing practice in nearby Christchurch Cathedral, and you'll hear these throughout the recording. So here is Raymond Dean in conversation with myself and Yvonne Ferguson, and to begin with, an extract from one of Raymond's pieces performed during the event, his excursus performed by saxophonist Robert Finnegan. So, Raymond, I'm, let's start, first of all, with that piece from 1996, Excursus. Yep. Um, tell it, us about it. It was uh, written for Kenneth Edge, uh, with whom I worked a lot in those days. Uh, we, we actually gave a couple of concerts together. We, gave, we did a, a, a recital of Irish saxophone and piano music in Kishinev in Moldova in 1995. And then I wrote uh, this piece for him. It's been performed a fair bit. I think the first performance may have been uh, in Switzerland in a version, uh, I, well, the notes are the same, but played by a clarinet, not by Ken, by somebody else. And then Ken did it in Montreal, for example, mm. uh, where somebody said to me, oh, you've been listening to Klezmer. And I didn't, I'd never heard of Klezmer, let alone have listened to it. So I, f- I found that very interesting. And I listened then to some Klezmer. And I found, yeah, that, it sounds as though I've, I've actually <laughs> been listening to Klezmer. I hadn't a clue. So what's it like hearing the piece now? 
Well, I was a bit worried when I decided to 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 put it on because I hadn't a clue whether it was a good piece or not. Uh, uh, and Robert then sent me a recording of his uh, his playing a version of it, and I thought, ah, oh, it's, it's not bad at all. Oh, I wish I'd I wish I'd written that. So, oh, I did, yeah. <laughs> so um, so no, I like it. I think it's a good piece. I can see what I was doing, and I I, I more or less did it properly. You mean that day in the kitchen when we were talking about what pieces we'd include, you didn't consider this a masterpiece? You really certainly had us fooled. Uh, I, th- I thought it would be a good piece to open the proceedings, but uh, I think it's better than that now. Yeah. Mm. So y- y- Yvonne said it, th- this is not, uh, this is your life, but I have in front of me an archival box here with, with some goodies and things. Uh, not quite this is your life and not quite the uh, trademark colour. But I'd like to begin with an article that you wrote in this magazine, Soundpost, in 1982 on none other than John Cage turning 70. And thanks to uh, Mark Fitzgerald, who I think sent this article on to you, which incidentally, um, it also has on the same page a another article by Michael Durbin on the Irish Composer Centre, which went on to become CMC. But back to Cage. And to quote from this, John Cage is 70 this year. The above factual statement looks decidedly strange on paper, and I can scarcely reread it without having to repress a gasp of incredulity. Cage, 70 years old? The two notions seem to repel one another. It is conceivable that the Boulezes and Stockhausens of this world may someday attain this biblical span. But John Cage will remain the plied enfant terrible if, as we hope, he lives to be 140. And you conclude the piece by saying how Cage, and I quote again, having attained the age of 70 with such a plum may serve as a sort of challenge to those who make such heavy weather of being less than half his age. So Raymond, you are 70 this year. Looking back... Have you achieved this milestone with a plum? That's not for me to say. Although <laughs> uh, it is, it is uh, it, when I was 35, uh, and indeed when I was writing that, which was a little bit later than that, um, it, it didn't look at all as though I would make it to, to, uh, to, uh, to 35 even, yeah, or to, to 70. Uh, but here I am, and, uh, you know, I can, I have a bit of arthritis, but I'm still on the go, you know, so... And I'm still kind of happy with what I'm composing. In fact, uh, yeah, I think I'm composing some really good stuff these days. So you know, it's, it's not too bad. So it feels creatively significant reaching this age. Um, but, but, but not specifically because I'm seventy. It's just uh, it's just nice uh, nice to be still on the go. You know, um, yeah. Well, going back to beyond that and further back, we have another piece of. Uh, ephemera and memorabilia from uh, the festival, the Dublin Festival of of 20th Century Music. Wow. I don't think I have the right programme now, but we do have no, that the right programme. That's it. Format for oh piano solo. Yes. Raymond Dean, who is also the performer. Wow. That's um, amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah. Raymond Dean was born in County Mayo and has been living in Dublin for five years. <laughs> it's incredible. For for you taking you back to that time, as an early composer, and now in your seventieth year, what's maybe changed, and what's remained kind of central to you 
as well, a composer? Well, uh, certainly that piece, that, that format one. Um, the, the story about that is uh, uh, that it was in the exam hall in TCD where all those concerts took place. And it was it was, it was January, wasn't it, I think? Yeah. Uh, and it was unseasonally, seasonably warm. And they had the windows open behind the, the stage. And I was, I had this aleatoric piece in, in, I was very avant-garde, 16 year old, 15 year old, yeah. And um, uh, I had all these sheets of paper there in front of me and I was playing away. And of course, a gust of wind came in and blew everything <laughs> onto, the, onto the floor of the stage. So I, I got off the stool and I crawled around the floor and I picked up everything and put them back and continued and, and played to the end and got a great uh, sympathy vote from the audience. They really seemed to like this. And apparently I heard afterwards that the RTE sound recorder, who shall be nameless, in the back room, who did not have a copy of the score, was heard to say, God, those modern composers and their big, long silences. <laughs> um, so that, was, that was my debut. <laughs> And a piece like format, it's aleatoric, as you say, and it's a very early piece. Has there been an aesthetic? Has there been a Raymond Dean kind of central line through your composition? Well, if there has, it would have started fairly soon after that, because uh, I went to Darmstadt later that year, 1969. Uh, I was 16 at that point. I was uh, the youngest participant mm -hmm. in Darmstadt. And uh, all these people, my great heroes were there. Stockhausen was there. Bruno Maderna was there. Uh, you know, Ligeti was there, Lucas Foss, all these people. It was, it was an extraordinary thing. But there were a couple of pieces. There was a, the Sequenza for Oboe by Berio. There was the Continuum for Harpsichord by, by Ligeti. Uh, and there was a piece that I bitterly hated, which was In C by Terry Riley. Um, and somehow or other, uh, and Stockhausen then was doing his, his so-called intuitive music and saying, we must give up writing music it's too, we must compose intuitively from now on. We must never write anything down. Not telling anybody that he was already halfway through his, his mantra for two pianos that he has fully written out. Um, but I took this very seriously. When I got back to Ireland, I improvised an awful lot. And uh, uh, I, some of that stuff that I had heard, including the Terry Riley thing, really penetrated me. The repetitions, the use of kind of white note stuff. I mean, that format piece was entirely atonal, entirely all 12 notes being circulated all the time. So then um, RTE said, would I play that piece on a TV program called, I think, Motley. It was a children's TV program presented by uh, Sheridan, Jim Sheridan, the film director, later film director. Um, uh, uh, would I play that piece on that program? And I said, no, uh, um, I, I don't write like that anymore, but I'll write you a new piece. And I wrote a new piece, and it was a bit like that piece, except towards the end, I stuck in a chord of C major. And I thought, gosh, that really sounds good. That's extraordinary in that context. Uh, and I then, the whole ending of the piece is completely different to what had gone before. And then I went on and I wrote, that became the first Orphic piece, and I wrote three more Orphic pieces that followed that idea. And I had the, I thought what I was doing was purifying traditional sounds by putting them through the mill of atonality. Now, what I was doing was something quite different. It was just a question of, of bringing different worlds into collision. Uh, but that is essentially what I've gone on doing for the last half century since then.
going back to that concert, age 16, in the examination hall of at Trinity, um, there's a, a nice quote from Michael Durvin about that in 2016 in The Invisible Thread, the book. And I quote again, if you wanted to point to a key change through the emergence of a new composer, the moment would probably be the appearance of Raymond Dean playing his own music at the Young Composers concert at the first festival of 20th century music in 1969. Dean was the first of a new breed to make a splash. Did you realise that back then? Because it must have been really heady days for you. <laughs> Well, no, in, in a strange sort of way, they weren't because, you know, one was so arrogant and and uh, and, uh, and sure of oneself. Uh, well, I wasn't that sure of myself, but I, 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 I don't know. I sort of took it for granted to a certain extent. I, I was quite convinced that I was doing something completely personal um, and, and that was it. And I had no doubt at all that without my making any effort whatsoever, that this stuff would, would, would uh, take over the world, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, and of course, with the with the massive support of people like Michael Durbin, that failed to do so. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, there were heady days, as you say, uh, uh, from about 1970 on. Uh, there was that because largely of the Dublin Festival of 20th Century Music, uh, this whole generation of composers uh, emerged, and and there was great interest. There was extraordinary interest in what we were doing. The audiences used to turn up. Uh, of people who had never gone to contemporary music before. Uh, people who come over from the Times of London, Felix Abrahamian, I think was his name, came over from the, the Times and reviewed concerts from that. Uh, I think he wrote something nice about me too, you know. I mean, jeez. Uh, so it, it, it was an extraordinary, and, and it was very easy at that point to think, yeah, everything is going smoothly, everything is, is easy. And of course, as the 80s wore on and the festival died in 1984, um, everything changed and people lost interest and uh, um, the only people who really survived were the ones who worked hard at their own careers, which I didn't. You know? So there was a big hiatus for me. Mm. Can we talk briefly about that hiatus or the, the bump in the road? Um, it is another anniversary this year, 35 years sober for you. Mm. Um, we won't dwell on it too much, but I mean, Looking back or reflecting for you for you personally um, and that gap, as you say, the hiatus in your writing and, and coming out the other side of that. I imagine that hu the huge kind of, you know, that independence of, of kind of creative mind, that energy then after that time was like a, a, a kind of a recommencement, a rebirth. As yeah, a well, it, it, it certainly seemed like that. I mean, I, I during the fifty year, fifteen years uh, that that or so that that I kind of did my best to to destroy my career on myself. I was still writing music all the time, and I was getting commissions and uh, even winning awards. I never entered for awards now, so I can't describe myself as award-winning composer. Um, you know, I, I I kept on composing, but but. The thing is that those works I composed between the ages of 15 and 20, extraordinary, they were so precocious. Wherever they came from, they're still a mystery to me. That piece, Embers, for example, that is my still, I wrote it when I was 20, and it's my most widely performed work today, a half century later. Um, I don't know how I wrote that, and it still seems to me a, a remarkable piece. And then suddenly all that was over, 
you know. Um, I graduated from university, I went abroad, I went to Switzerland, uh, away from the, the kind of uh, discipline, the family life and university and all the rest of it. And I kind of went to the dogs, you know, and uh, uh, just completely lost that, 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 to call it spontaneity, I suppose it was a kind of spontaneity, to have lost that uh, and to have a kind of theoretical idea of what it was I was doing. Can I reproduce that? And then you realize you're copying yourself. Uh, so that kind of went on for 15 years. Sometimes it worked. I mean, there are good pieces in there. There are pieces that I still like a lot in there. But mostly, uh, I think there, there's a certain strain and awkwardness in a lot of that music. So from 1988 onwards, uh, it was a question of reconnecting. And again, you can't do that artificially. You can't say, okay, now everything is different. How do I get back to where I was 15 years ago? That's not how it works. But somehow... Uh, things coalesce of their own their own accord, and I feel reasonably uh, happy that they have. Yeah, you see a connection between the pieces onwards from 1988 and Embers. Oh, I do. Yeah, yes. definitely. Embers is is more than anything else, perhaps the piece that, in a nutshell, contains uh, the, the the premises of everything I've done subsequently. I mean, there are elements of that in other early pieces like uh, Equivoque for Quintet, Aliens. Uh, those piano pieces, the Orphic pieces, Idols for Organ, which I composed in 1971 and is being done next Sunday by Jared Gillen, for whom I wrote it when I was 18. So he must be a bit older than me now. He was my lecturer, a lecturer in UCD at that point. Uh, so he's playing that in, in St. Michael's Dunleary on Sunday, you know. So there are elements of all those pieces that I say, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that is, that's still there. It's interesting to hear you say that because like composers often spend years to study of study to find their own voice, you know, through learning the craft of composition, going to different teachers, uh, through maturity, I guess. Um, it seems a little different from what you described for you and that you achieved, as you call it, a kind of premature maturity in these early pieces. Mm, yeah, I had a voice. Yeah, I had a voice. I lost it. Uh, and then I developed another voice that kind of incorporates uh, the early one. But I mean, when I went abroad uh, to study, study in quotation marks, composition, um, and these people like Gerald Bennett, who was my, my teacher in Basel in Switzerland, uh, sort of look at the, the, the pieces that I had presented and said, yeah, well, OK, an awful lot of repetition in that, of course. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get you out of that, don't worry. You know, <laughs> so all the things that, that were really distinctive in what I was doing were things that to these people who were in the tradition of Bulles and Stockhausen uh, and had stayed in that tradition, um, what I was doing seemed just like, you know, student work. And said, we'll show them how it's really done, how the, how the big boys do it, you know. Uh, that was very distressing to me and uh, you, very hard to cope with that when you're, you're, you're in a pretty insecure place anyway, as I said. And, you know, just going back briefly to Embers uh, and, and, and we will we will move on to the to your current work, including the two new pieces that we're going to hear shortly. What do you remember about composing that? I mean, were you aware that you had really hit on something special in terms of your own voice at that time or, or did that come later? Yeah, I, 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 I was aware um, of what I was doing. The, the, the piece Embers... I composed it for a specific concert uh, presented by the Association of Young Irish Composers that uh, Brian Beckett, Derek Ball, Gerald Barry, John Gibson, the late John Gibson, and myself 
set up around about 1972. Um, so we were putting on, we put on a lot of concerts and they were really well attended. Uh, and in 1973, uh, we put on some string quartet music. The quartet was an ad hoc one um, built around Charlie Maguire, viola player, whose brother Hugh Maguire was was much better known violinist. Uh, now, these were great musicians, but they, they had no experience in contemporary music. Uh, so I thought, right, I'll write a simple piece, a slow piece, a piece with a lot of silences, a piece that will be in 4-4 four, four time throughout. There will be no 7 in the time of 5, over 3 in the time of 13, and the rest of it. Uh, and that actually suited me very well, because what I was doing anyway was this very pared-down uh, uh, music at that time. Uh, and then these people came along, they were completely mystified, but uh, the, the score was notated in such a way that, that they were able to pull it off uh, and, and it went very well. Uh, but I, you know, somebody then whose opinion I respected at the time uh, said to me, oh, well, that piece, you know, it's just not, it's not organized, it's just an improvisation or something. And I thought, oh yeah, well, maybe he's right. And I completely lost faith in that piece and I kind of dismissed it. And then 20 years later, the Duke Quartet, the English Duke Quartet, were doing a Music Network tour of Ireland. Uh, they gave six concerts around the country and they included embers. And I went around the country with them to talk about the piece. And I listened to it over and over again. I thought, hey, wait a minute. That's an amazing piece. Yeah. I was wrong all those years about it. Yeah. I had, in the meantime, done a string orchestra version of it, which had been performed by the National Symphony, well, the RTE Symphony Orchestra, as it was then. Again, in that uh, 2016 Surviving the Island, or whatever it's called, Composing the Island, sorry, <laughs> uh, festival. Uh, it was conducted by Gerhard Markson. Um, and uh, the thing is that there was a, a crotchet equals 76 uh, metronome mark for the piece, which means that the piece should have lasted eight minutes. Uh, so I went to the rehearsal and Gerhard, I mean, I'd made a, a CD with Gerhard Markson. We got on very well together. We had worked together pretty intensively and I trusted him implicitly. Uh, and I sat down for this rehearsal and he just started conducting at this slow pace. It must have been Crotted Eagles 54 or something like that. And I was listening and said, what is he doing? This is not going to work. And then these long silences come. They're already long. And at the beginning of each silence, his hands would be up like that. He'd move them down slowly, very precisely. And at the end, when they came to the bottom, and they would start, and everybody followed him impeccably. And as I was listening, I thought, yeah, geez, that really, that's working incredibly well. <laughs> and it, 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 there was a tension, but at the same time, there was a kind of meditative aspect to it. And it... it, it it opened up uh, vistas of that piece that I had been unaware were in there. Uh, so I, I didn't interrupt the performance to say, no, speed it up, you know. I, I left it as well. And I thought to myself, he'll never pull that off at the live performance. And then I turned up to the live performance a couple of days later. He did it exactly the same way. The musicians responded in exactly the same way. And the audience was co totally hushed the whole time. Uh, and to me, that was that was very, very, uh, a very important experience. Although I had already, down the years, um, got to respect performers more and more because the more you work with people, uh, and the more you, you 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 do find that somebody will say, "Well, look, suppose I do this, 
instead of that. I mean, you'd probably change my views of, of that saxophone piece a wee bit. Uh, and if that suggestion is good, they're not just inventing something off their own bat. They're finding something in the piece that even I wasn't aware of, because you're not necessarily aware of everything you do in a piece. You've written this piece, Microforms, for, for mm-hmm. Emma yep. and uh, for flute and piano, but especially for Emma. How did that come about? Um, this is your first piece for Emma. Not yeah. your first piece for flute and piano, but your first piece for Emma. Not the first piece of mine that she's played, but the first uh-huh. one I've written for her. For, yeah. Written for her. And how did that come about? Well, um, <clears throat> it's a lockdown story, really. Um, I, I noticed that... Uh, was one of you did this interview with 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 Owen Desmond, mm-hmm. yes, colleague, composer, yeah. colleague, who was saying that he found lockdown really terrible because he had no motivation for composing. He was composing in a vacuum and he couldn't do that. Um, and I remember in lockdown, I was in Germany and I was sitting there at the piano, nothing on hand. The the National Concert Hall had closed down on the day that the premiere of my Irish language songs are supposed to take place. Uh, there are no commissions, there's nothing happening. And I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do? And I thought, well, wait a minute. And I started fiddling around on the piano. And, oh, that's nice. And I started writing. And I wrote a series of seven piano pieces called Scintille. I then made a version of them for violin and piano. And I then wrote these flute and piano pieces. I then wrote my seventh string quartet. And I wrote the choral piece, uh, the Five Roses and Four Parts. I just wrote these in, in one flood uh, because I was no longer thinking or bothering about, oh, is there a commission? What am I supposed to be doing here? I was composing because I'm a composer and because I actually discovered I enjoy composing. I'd completely forgotten that I did, you know? Uh, so these, these pieces were written in when? August to October 2021, uh, right in the thick of the whole lockdown thing. And... Uh, um, for me, they're, well, I'm looking forward to hearing them. Obviously, I haven't heard any of them uh, except what I hear from my computer when it turns them out. Um, so, yeah, they, 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 there was a kind of, that word again, spontaneity in the composition, that uh, in the act of composition. It'll be interesting for me to hear 
whether it comes out uh, uh, in, in the in the in the music itself, I think it will. Um, you know, I, uh, uh, Emma had uh, made a recording of uh, of uh, that piece called Tekeli Lee by me. So we had been in communication and uh, good. And I thought, right, uh, flute, flute and piano is a, good, is, is a good thing. So when one says flute and piano, it's actually flutes and piano. Because uh, the first piece is just an ordinary flute. The second one is piccolo. The third one is bass flute. The fourth one is alto flute. And the fifth, real torture, uses the flute, the bass flute, and the piccolo. Uh, I forgot to put in the alto flute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that's quite a nightmare for the performer, but I think it's... And, you know, going back to what you were saying about this, uh, you know, a lockdown piece and how you had this kind of, you know, quite a substantial burst of creativity. Um, why do you think you had that during lockdown when the experience for other people was very different? Oh, I don't know. I mean, everybody's experienced it <coughs> quite differently. I'm not the only person who has mm. had, I've been talking to other people subsequently, and some people have found it really liberating mm. in the way that I did, and some people have found the opposite. It's, who can say, it's a subjective thing. In my case, I think I had kind of taken for granted the, 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 the mechanism whereby you get a commission, you fulfill the commission, fine, I mean, that's you're, you're a professional. That doesn't mean that you're just doing your duty. You, you write your music and then you sit back and wait for the next commission. And in the meantime, you play online chess, you know, or, or whatever, uh, uh, which I do, by the way. And uh, um, whereas in this case, I just sat down and composed and found that it was really doing doing, doing me good. It, it was it was it was it was kicking me off the streets. So uh, and uh, it was a pleasurable experience. It was it, so I, mm. I, I kept doing it that way. And is that the you know the the best sort of composing where where you don't you're writing what you want to write as opposed to writing what somebody else wants to write mm. wants you to write or having to have that kind of negotiation of yeah, doing something in the it, middle. It's not even that simple because mm. generally speaking, with rare exceptions. I've been able to write what I want to write. I've been I've been pretty lucky that way. I mean, most of my output has been commissioned, but it's been very rare that I've received a commission for something that I got. Oh, jeeps, I can't do that. But I suppose I have to because there's a huge fee coming uh, or something. No, that hasn't that hasn't been the way it's 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 gone. Um, and generally speaking, you know, sometimes it's the other way around. Uh, somebody says, "Will you write?" A, a piece of piano quartet or something like that and you think, oh yeah that's that's a nice idea i hadn't thought of doing that um so yeah it's it's again it's these these experiences they're gobbled with
you do have a commission coming up next year. Big commission um, for orchestra and piano. Uh-huh. That's your kind of next big thing. Well, Hugh, well, is, well Hugh is here. Well finished. Um, well finished um, for performance next year. And, and you've worked with Hugh quite a lot, of course. Since 1995, m- yeah. Major um, piano work nocturne with the yeah. 12 yeah. movements. That's that's yeah, was for Hugh and on a CD and major, major work. So was there quite a bit of over and back between you, Hugh, you and Hugh about this new uh, yeah, work. Where, where is he? I can't see. He him. was here. Maybe he's he had to leave. Oh, he had to leave. Did he? Oh, that's all right. Then I can say any damn thing. Speak I freely. <laughs> uh, no, we we discussed the thing. We discussed what it would be, uh, what, what uh, my ideas, and they fitted very much with with what he wanted as well. So fine. So I sat down and I sketched. I think the first three pieces or something, and then he invited me out to his place. Uh, to show them to him, and uh, I went out to his place, and he said, "Okay, now sit down at the piano and play them. Come on, sit down and play this stuff that I'd written for this brilliant pianist in front of that pianist." Um, but I did. I kind of bluffed my way uh, through them, and it went okay. And uh, um, we kind of went on on that basis, and it, it worked out very well. Um, we had no. No collisions at any point about it, uh, except Hugh uh, thinks that I'm too insistent on my pedal marks being observed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just on that piece, it's not a concerto. It's not called a concerto. Well, no, I was asked to write a concerto and I said I won't. Uh, it won't be a concerto. Why? Said, well, that's fine. Well, what is a concerto? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have written, I, I wrote a violin concerto and I wrote an oboe concerto. Yeah. They're the only pieces I've written that are actually called concerto because they were going to take, in my mind, they were going to be show pieces for the instruments in a fairly traditional sense. Whereas I wanted this piece to be something a little bit more austere uh, and I didn't want, uh, I, I didn't want there to be too many, the, ins- the assumptions uh, raised by the word piano concerto. But of course, everybody, including myself, will be calling it piano concerto anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it is quite an austere piece that, that then kind of flashes out. It's 22 minutes long. Uh, uh, the shape of it is a bit unusual. It's in two parts. The first one is uh, 13 minutes, uh, 13 and a half or thereabouts. And the second one is eight and a half minutes, so long, short. Uh, and the second one begins as though it was the first one beginning all over again, uh, but then goes off in a different direction. Uh, so I think it's quite a strange piece and uh, I'm, I'm actually very happy with it. Before we finish up, there's, um, which we, and, and we get to hear some more of your music, uh, the other piece that's going to be performed uh, this evening, Five Roses in Four Parts. Tell me about this work. Uh, well, again, it was, it was just something I wanted to do. Um, I, I've, I've written, I haven't written a lot of choral music. I've twice written single pieces once. 1974, a thing called Slan La Serie that I wrote for St. Stephen's Singers, who were a choir based in, in uh, UCD in those days. Um, and that was for the Cork Choral Festival. Uh, then I wrote another piece that was commissioned uh, years later, and I remember eternity, Misa Bien L'Eterno. Uh, so th- there were those two. And then I thought I'd write a, a series of short choral pieces, sort of madrigals kind of thing. Uh, and I happened to be reading the Kindertotenlieder by Friedrich Rückert, that Mahler set. Uh, he wrote about 500 of them, I think, 500 of these poems when his children died. Rückert, 19th century German poet. 
Um, the one that, that I was reading uh, when I had this idea, the very short one, and Mallard did not set it, and it's, it, it's, it's about a rose. And then I thought of this idea, well, I know so many poems about roses, I'll, I'll set some of them to music. It's called Five Roses in Four Parts because the last one sets two poems by Rilke, one of them in French and, and one of them in German, his epitaph that is actually on his gravestone, and they both concern roses. Uh, then I also set the, the famous Roses, the Roses, the Roses, the Roses, the Roses by Gertrude, uh, Gertrude Stein or Steen. Uh, that's the one they're not doing this evening. Uh, I, uh, the second one we'll hear is a thing called Dreams by a poet called Lola Ridge. Lola Ridge was Irish born. Um, she was born 1873 in Dublin, died 1941 in Brooklyn. She was an extraordinary person. She um, uh, was a very radical politically. She was an anarchist and a Marxist, which is somewhat difficult to, to be. Uh, uh, she spent a life writing poetry and being an activist. And uh, I'd never come across her in my life. I think, again, one of my colleagues... Uh, Sean Doherty has Sean said Doherty, quite a bit right. of, yeah, of yeah. her work. That's, her, that's um, yeah, how I first, first heard, his choral, heard His choral piece is quite a bit of her, yeah. her work. So was, that, was that a draw to her work, the kind of activism and... I mean, apart from the poetry being beautiful, was that also a well, kind of a draw-in for you? It was, it, was, it was a factor. I, lo I looked her up after I saw that John Doherty had said something of hers and never having heard of her. And I found that the poetry was fascinating and that her life was fascinating mm -hmm. and that her political engagement kind of spoke to me as well. Mm -hmm. Now, we're running rapidly out of time yeah. and we don't really have time to talk about your political engagement. But I suppose just to sort of ask you, do, do you think music can be should be political well, not art sh not should be i don't i don't <coughs> i don't you don't do should yeah um i do should about some things but not about music um i, I think i think one should say that things can be i mean music can be political doesn't have to be um it any music can be interpreted in a political context in a political way because it functions in the world uh, but i've tended even though i've been a political activist for the last 20 something years um, I've tended not to write political music as such. I've sometimes used texts that have a political association or there's something like the oboe concerto, which does have a bit of a program behind it. But generally speaking, the idea of writing uh, narrowly political music, it's not something I do. Raymond, it's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat. It always is. It always has been. Thank you for being so generous uh, about your works and about your, your life. And uh, I know that everybody's uh, been really engaged as we've been. been Can I just say one thing? Yes. Say whatever you want. Yes. Thank you to the CMC for putting on this event. Oh, we're right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
An extract from the first performance outside in CMC's courtyard of three of the movements from Five Roses in Four Parts by Raymond Dean. The singers were Blah Conroy Murphy, Breed Negrogon, Shane Barriscale and Paul McGough. That's all for this episode. My thanks to Keith Fennell on sound and editing. We'll be taking a short summer break and hope to be back with more episodes in the autumn. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great summer.